This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 19 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me here today is another special guest. She is one of the most active members of the Swift Evolution community. In fact, she has authored a really large number of Swift Evolution proposals. It's Erika Sadun. Welcome to the show, Erika. Hey! So you are really active in the Swift Evolution community, uh, which is, uh, in case people don't know, kind of the place where the Swift language gets designed, in a way? It is. When... Apple decided to open source their Swift language. One of the things that was created was Swift Evolution, which is a community, a mailing list, and now a forum where people can talk about the future direction of Swift, make suggestions as to how Swift should evolve as a language, and support the development of the language by coding and by formal proposals, which are a sort of white paper where people describe the benefits of adding new features and why they have real-world ramifications that will support people using the language. I think it's a really cool process. It's not something I've really seen for any other language. I think a lot of other languages are usually tend to be very focused around their creator. Uh, but in case of Swift, even though like Chris Latner, he still you know makes some blog posts sometimes and make proposals. Uh, I feel like it's way more community-driven than things we've seen in the past. Well, I don't know if that's entirely true, because quite a lot of language efforts do follow this model. And there's recently been a revolution, and I think it was JavaScript. I don't remember exactly which language. But over whether a function should be renamed to something like Squish or Squoosh or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. That's been huge over the last few weeks. So it's not just Swift evolution. There are many languages that have adopted the model of soliciting community support and community interest in creating a user-driven model of where the language goes. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Uh, What do you think, like... What's the main reason that kind of Apple opted for this strategy? Because if we think about it, it's in many ways, if we think about kind of the traditional Apple and the way Apple usually operates, it's kind of the opposite of that, right? Where Apple are usually used to presenting us with like the new SDKs and the new APIs at WWDC. But here you have like a way more transparent process. Well, to answer your first question, which is why did it happen? I think it's Chris Latner. Yeah. And it is so antithetical to the way Apple operates because Apple is basically the Death Star. (laughs) Secrets within secrets. And everybody who gets hired as a stormtrooper, you ask each stormtrooper, you know, so are you going to be working on foundation? Are you going to be working in dev tools? Yeah. You know, what are you going to be doing? And they will answer, I cannot answer that. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Cool. So uh, what is it about Swift Evolution that kind of appeals to you? Because you are very, very active in this community and you've authored so many different proposals. Uh, what is it a kind of about language design or about the Swift process that kind of excites you? What got me into Swift was Apple's relentless update cycle. As a writer, 
I had been writing how-to books on iOS programming for years and years, and every single year my book was out of date. So let me give you an idea of what a, a typical year was like. June happened, and immediately I started writing over the summer. Evenings, weekends, whatever. Everything I could do to get my first draft done by August. So that when September rolled around, that it could go th start through the print process, which would then take 90 days for a typical traditional publisher. And I was working with Addison Wesley, which meant that my book would hit print sometime in December, typically towards the end of December. And I was always the first book out there because I worked so freaking hard during this entire six month period to get it out. My book would hit the shelf and by March, people were signing up for WWDC, and by June, my book was dead. You know, it was not a fun way to make a living. Yeah. And when Apple announced that they had a new language, I thought to myself, great, this is awesome. <laughs> I can stop writing about iOS, and I can start writing books that have long shelf lives. Think about it. It's a language. You know, you, you write a book about Objective-C, you could still use that book in five years, in 10 years. This is going to be the most awesome thing ever. So I throw, threw myself heart and soul into Swift language development, thinking I can write about Swift, which I have, and it's going to stay the same, which, <laughs> as you know, it hasn't. And so I held off and I held off as I saw the language changing, changing, changing. And then it hit, you know, open source community, and it did that right around Swift 2. And by then, I had insight into the process because, again, if you're going to do any sort of tech writing, you have to go in there fully. <laughs> you yeah. cannot just dip your toe into tech writing and be a dilettante when it comes to, to the tech that you're writing. You really need to explore it from the bottom up. And at that point, I realized this stuff is not going to stabilize anytime soon. Yeah. And here's an opportunity to really know the language, not only from the bottom up, but to to take all these things because, you know, it's really easy to be a critic when you're outside the process and you say, I wish that Apple would do this in foundation, or I wish Apple would do that in UI kit and put my money where my mouth was, so to speak. And Commit to making those changes I thought were positive and important to Swift users because I really do think of myself as an advocate for the typical Swift user. Yeah. And I like to give voice to those people who are really busy just trying to, you know, do their products, make some money, and live in the Apple ecosystem with this huge behemoth setting policy. Yeah. That's a great, great reason. Uh, it's it's something that I wish I would do a little bit more as well, I guess. it's I've been thinking about it so many times that I should get more into Swift evolution, but it can seem kind of intimidating at first. You know, when you look at it, it moves really fast. It's, it's better now, I guess, with the forum than with the mailing list. It's actually worse. The traffic has increased by an order of magnitude, at least. Yeah. So now there is just so much information going on. It is a far more difficult prospect, I think, now with the forums than it used to be with the mailing list. And even with the mailing list, 
Yes, I totally agree with you. That itself was intimidating because what you have are people talking very seriously about 20 or 30 different topics at a time. Now you have people talking very seriously and some not quite so seriously about a hundred topics or more at a time. I guess it's one of those things where it's kind of a double-edged sword where like jumping into a forum and maybe commenting on one issue or one proposal in this case is easier than just joining a mailing list and responding. So in that case, I guess the barrier for entry is lower, but as you say, the bandwidth also becomes kind of way broader. So you get so much more content and that can also make it harder to get involved. A year and a half, two years ago, Swift Evolution made a huge change which lowered the bandwidth. And they said, if you have a proposal, if you want to change the language, you come in first with a solution, an implementation. So if you have a language feature you think should be included, program it first and then start pitching it. Yeah. When the forums came, we went back to, here's an idea. Here's, here's an idea I want to pitch. What do you think of this idea before I start developing it? And of course, the value of that is that you can have some back and forth and see if it's really worth pursuing. The other half of that is people will come with ideas that are, I really wish it would kind of do this. What do you think about that? And you can end up with very, very talky, long threads that don't push things technologically. Yeah, the, the biggest benefit, I guess, of having a concrete implementation is that you have something, well, concrete to discuss. It's not, it doesn't become this, like, you know, very undefined uh, discussion where, it, you know, it can lead anywhere. There are really very few constraints on it. Uh, when you have a concrete implementation that you're discussing, it's by, by kind of by nature very a lot more narrow. It's more than that, though, which is that, <laughs> you know, dating regrets where people <laughs> sort of wish, oh, I wish I had talked to this guy's friends or her friends, I guess, um, you know, and found out these things before I invested <laughs> my emotions into this relationship. Yeah. Swift went through one of those. This new policy means that you try before you buy. And having it in code and having people actually use test builds means that you can kick the tires, try it out, take it for that road trip, and see if it really does do what the promise, you know, means. Yeah. If you commit really early on to certain patterns, you're stuck with those patterns and those patterns haunt the language for a very long time. And that's why language changes really need to be so thoughtful. Here is one that I'm fighting this very second, which is probably the single most source of stack overflow questions in the entire Swift universe. Oh, what can it be? <laughs> it is so simple. It is um, when you use an optional where it was expecting an unwrapped value and the types match. So it's a, an optional of type T and it was expecting something of type T. Uh -huh. 
it will say optional value of this this item is being used. Did you mean to unwrap this? And the fix it is insert exclamation point. Yes, I that that is <laughs> I have such a beef with that. So I'm very curious to hear what you're going to say next. <laughs> it is the single worst possible fix it in Swift. Yeah. And the reason is that 99% of the time, inserting an exclamation point is the wrong thing to do. Exactly. And it's what the language recommends. It's the, what the language promotes. And people who are either new to the language or who are just trying to get through their day will click the fix key. Yeah. And it's the wrong fix. Exactly. So I've come up with what I think is a ridiculously clever solution, mm -hmm. which is change the fix it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wording that ex kind of promotes the understanding that this isn't just you, you missed a semicolon as you would in a different language. It's not that kind of error. Yeah. And I'm also introducing a new operator, which I call the unwrap or die operator, <laughs> which basically says, unwrap the left hand side or throw a fatal error on the right hand side. And it's shorthand for a guard. Yeah. It basically is just the same thing as doing a guard, but you do it in one line instead of doing it in five lines. I'm promoting this, you know, proposal. This is my big thing right now. <laughs> You're going on the proposal tour. I'm on the proposal tour. Please introduce this. Chris Latner has already said this is an abomination and, you know, should not be part of the language, <laughs> which he has said about proposals before, because I have single-handedly proposed the, the highest quantity of rejected proposals in the Swift evolution process than anybody else. I, I, I have great pride in that. <laughs> I, I think it's awesome because it means, well, number one, it means that you're not afraid to kind of, you know, push the limits, right? And see where we're going. And sometimes, of course, that's going to be shut down because not everyone agrees. But I think it's awesome to have someone who's kind of, you know, pushing the limits and, and saying, you know, this is somewhere we could go. What do you guys think? So what do you say, Erika? Should we start diving into our questions and topics that we got from the audience? Let us do questions. All right. We, we're going to kick it off here with a great question from Sam Jarman. And he's asking a little bit about the difference between Swift and Objective-C types when it comes to strings and errors, etc. So the question is, I find it kind of weird that Swift has its own string and error types along those in foundation. Why is that? It just looks a bit janky when you're casting between them a lot when you're doing iOS development. And what's the kind of wisdom for dealing with these things? So it's basically when you have uh, an API which either gives you or accepts an NS string, for example, but you are in your own code using Swift strings. So how do you usually deal with these kind of things uh, in your code, Erica? That is a really good question. And I could go on for about three hours answering it. <laughs> so I'm going to try to give you some just really quick answers on several points. Perfect. And the first point is that Apple lives in a Death Star <laughs> and you can file as many radars, radars as you want, <laughs> but you're not going to actually have the stormtroopers do what you need them to do. You need to pull a Han Solo. <laughs> you need to pull a Han Solo. <laughs> Having a separate foundation means that you have something that is not tied to the Apple ecosystem as its primary goal. Swift is a cross-platform language. And 
you cannot use NS stuff on Linux. Right. But you can use foundation. Apple is a slave to its historicity. I don't know if that's even a word, but I just made it up. So I'm going to pretend that it is. Make a proposal for adding it to the English language. Yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> when you're tied to decisions that were made to older technologies, there's re it's really hard to make things light, fluent, and to bring modern, safe, and functional features into the language. Yeah. And you're dealing with strings in particular. It's a whole new ballpark now. Modern strings, you know, Unicode, and the notion of clusters where you can take pictures of, you know, like two dads and their kids and combine them into a single cluster and create something that shows that family group. Yeah. That is so different from 1988, where, you know, NS string really started. Yeah. Because we're dealing with technologies that were inherited from the next. Hence NS. But you know what? You can do so much more with old style technology. And the reason is that throughout the years, people give them features and more features and more features and more features. And they didn't have to go through the swift evolution process. And there's almost always something incredibly useful in old classes. Yeah, I, I think in general, you know, there are so many conveniences that we have when it comes to dealing with these uh, kind of Apple foundation types. You know, you can, for example, just say Swift string as and a string or take an end string and do as a Swift string. But like you mentioned, there's number one, there's there might be a good reason to use the end string type because there are many more APIs available on it. But also it can be a bit tricky, like we just talked about with Unicode, where the indices in an N string might not match up to the indices in a Swift string. And especially when you're dealing with an attributed string, which is UTF-16 uh, versus uh, Swift UTF-8, you can get some really bad crashes if you have a string containing these emoji clusters, for example. In Apple Foundation, under you know the Death Star, <laughs> you get um, NS range. Yeah. NS range is integer. That's a great example. It is location and length. That makes so many assumptions about what a string is. And this is really why you see a lot of things being redefined in the Swift language in a new clean way, but a modern way. Admittedly, it will take time to grow and expand and so forth, but you can't live in 1988 forever. Cool. So I guess if we should sum up like what we think is the wisdom for dealing with these kind of types is to, you know, be careful, especially when it comes to strings, it might be really convenient to just say, you know, a Swift string as and a string, but they're not always compatible. But for other things like errors, where you can just take a uh, Swift error and convert it to NS error, then that's pretty useful because you can get access to like the error code without really having to worry about things. But yeah, in general, it kind of helps to understand how these things differ and how they work under the hood. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go ahead now and move over to the next question. But before we do, I want to take a very quick break and thank our very first sponsor. And it's my good friends over at Ray Vendelik. You probably already know about Ray Vendelik 
for their awesome tutorials and courses about Swift and iOS developments. In fact, for over eight years, RayVendelik.com has been the best place to learn iOS development on the internet. I've personally learned so much from what I know about iOS from Ray's site, especially when I was getting started. Everything from wrapping my head around UI table view to learning how to set up my own very first app. Now, if you're like me and you really like Swift and iOS, but you've also been really curious about Kotlin and maybe getting into Android development, then I have some really good news for you because the team at Ray Vendelik are expanding a big way into Android and Kotlin development with an avalanche of new Android and Kotlin books, courses, and screencasts. So here's the deal. From March 19th to the 30th, you can access all the new Android and Kotlin books, courses, and screencasts at a massive 20% discount. If you've been thinking about moving your career ahead with Android and Kotlin development, then this is definitely the time to do it. All you have to do is head over to store.rayvendelik.com to take advantage of their time-limited Android Avalanche sale, which ends on March the 30th. Again, that's store.rayvendelik.com to save 20% on the Android Avalanche until March the 30th. Thank you so much to Ray Vendelik and his wonderful team for sponsoring Swift by Sundell and for helping me to continue make this show possible. Cool, so let's move over now to the next question. And this one comes from Eric Swifty. And I don't know if that's your la real last name, Eric, but if it is, then that's a really awesome last name, Swifty. Uh, and Eric asks about stored properties in Swift extensions. Uh, you can't store a property in a Swift extension, but what do we think about using Objective-C get associated objects as a workaround? So this is something I've seen in quite a lot of code bases, especially if you want to provide some kind of easy to use uh, API where you are, uh, for example, extending a protocol or something and providing some additional storage. But the question is, is that really a good practice? What do you think, Erica? It is both a good practice and not a good practice. And I can't really answer this without bringing it into another evolution proposal. Sure, go ahead. And I would love to have stored extensions, you know, stored properties in extensions. It's something I would really love. But you are opening such a can of worms when you do that. Yeah. And already we cannot function with our protocol extensions that we have and our uh, you know type extensions that we have we simply cannot do it yet and we can't do it safely and the reason is fairly complex but there are times that you change a name of a protocol requirement but you don't change where it has been already implemented yeah and you then suddenly have a mismatch between the protocol and the types that implement things. And there's no checks and balances there. And the proposal that I've been pushing, it's secondary to the unwrap or die. So it's sort of <laughs> what I'm doing next. Extend or die or no, something? No, it's, it's basically called roll keywords. Mm -hmm. And it puts in those checks and balances into Swift. So it prevents against about five different kinds of errors that happen where you have near-miss implementations of things required in protocols, but the compiler doesn't tell you that. Right. 
or you change something in a protocol, but the compiler doesn't give you that feedback either. Mm-hmm. Or you do similar things. Let's say you accidentally override in your implementation a necessary method that was provided by a protocol implementation. Yeah. Okay? So you conform to a protocol. The protocol extension gives you a default implementation and you accidentally override it with something without realizing you've overridden it. That's a huge bug. There's no way for the compiler to catch that. But if you had mandatory keywords like override, then the compiler could say, oh, you have written this method. You are in conflict with one. If you really meant to override that, then add the override keyword. Yeah, that's the same way as it works for classes. Similarly, with um, satisfaction, did you mean to satisfy a protocol requirement or were you trying to go for something else? Because if you accidentally satisfy something, again, the compiler is not going to warn you. And if you write the wrong kind of implementation, it's a major bug. Yeah, exactly. So until you get that kind of structure into protocols, into extensions, and this, you know, kind of passes along to type extensions as well, then adding stored properties, I think, is too soon. Mm -hmm. You need to have the safety first and then add the extensions. Yeah, because sometimes I can really see the appeal of it when you have, I mean, it's a way to kind of combat boilerplate, right? Where if you have like a protocol uh, requirement that all the implementers implement the same way, then I can see, you know, a convenience to do that in a protocol extensions or in a protocol extension. But then also, I I think you should maybe ask yourself the question, like, I know we're all now into this kind of protocol-oriented programming hype, but is a protocol really the right tool? Oh, God, yes. (laughs) If you have this kind of relationship, then maybe a superclass that actually implements this property that you're looking to use a protocol extension for might be a better approach in this case. The thing is that right now, a lot of people don't understand the difference between protocols, which allows you to... treat distinct types that share semantic qualities with common code Mm -hmm. and subtyping, which lets you specialize a type and give each child different qualities. There's a lot of confusion in why you would want to use one or the other. And it's something that really only you get if you write the code a lot. And protocols are awesome, but they are solving a different problem than inheritance and object-oriented programming. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes as programmers, we have this tendency of thinking uh, about things as kind of silver bullets, where, you know, we might be really excited about these uh, protocols and the way we can use them in Swift. And it is really exciting, especially with protocol extensions, you can do some really, really interesting things. But, you know, sometimes I think also taking a step back and realizing that, you know, it's kind of the same principle as we were talking about, about these technologies that have existed for 30 years. Uh, let's, not, let's not kind of just throw them to the side and still remember that 
you know, if we need to add storage to a type, then subclassing is a totally viable option still. All right, so our next question comes from friend of the show, Guy Rambo, and he would like to hear our opinion about the current state of tooling for Swift. So as we know, people have different opinions about Xcode, and he says that Xcode is still not very good at it, so should we expect some improvements in that area for this year? What do you think, Erica? Are we in for a rehaul of our Swift developer tools? Well, here's the thing. <laughs> remember the Death Star metaphor I used before? <laughs> I do remember the Death Star metaphor. All of that is under Apple's umbrella. The Xcode team, DevTools, and so forth, none of us have any view into there unless you work for Apple. Yeah. So there's really no way to know what they're doing. I am so excited by what could happen. And I know that Guy in particular has this theory about a unified uh, user experience kit. Yeah. And if that happens, if that's real, that's going to be amazing. And I can't imagine they would do that without new tooling. I mean, at least you would have to re rework like interface builder and these kind of things mm -hmm. to be more cross-platform, right? Right. But I also want to see a lot more emphasis on playgrounds. Because yeah, absolutely. So far, playgrounds both on Mac and on iOS have been really geared towards tooling that's specifically for teaching. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But my thing, and I think the concern of most people who would be listening to your podcast, is less with pedagogy and a lot more with engineering. Yeah, absolutely. And with Playgrounds in particular, it's interesting because they seem to be able to end up in a state where they are practically unusable. Because I get a lot of people asking me on Twitter, like, how can you use Playgrounds? Because for me, every time I open a Playground, it just crashes. And I don't know if they're exaggerating, but knock on wood, uh, for me, they are working really well. And I'm using them like all the time. Every single day, I'm opening a Playground to do some prototyping. And I'm not saying they're perfect, but for me, they work really well. But like you say, I, there's... I think a lot of untapped potential here, both to make them more stable, because I would love for anyone to be able to use them reliably, uh, but also for being able to like connect with your own project in a way, like you say, like not only for teaching something brand new or experimenting, but maybe being able to use your own project files in a much easier way. I spend the majority of my time in production Xcode versus beta Xcode. And I start you know, I quit and restart Xcode at least six to 10 times an hour. Oh, wow. That's a lot. At least. And most of that happens because playgrounds get into a state where they're trying to resolve things internally and just get very upset and just can't do it. Yeah. As it is, when you press the stop button after encountering an error and press play again mm -hmm. to get it running, there can be significant delays. And for me, playgrounds are my primary development tool. Yeah, I use them because I'm doing a lot of sample code or I'm demonstrating an algorithm or I'm helping somebody solve a specific problem. Um, and because of that, I'm hopping into them and out of them just constantly. Yeah, And I... If you're doing normal coding in Playgrounds, 
often it's tweaking, you know, let me try a little of this, try a little of that, which is very different to what I do when I do the coding. Right. And because of that, I think I put more stress on the playground. Do you also import like a very big amount of code, like as accessories? No, I really don't. In fact, most of the time, I try not to even import foundation if I can, because I want everything as clean as possible, no dependencies. That is really critical for writing sample code. That is pure Swift times two. Yeah. <laughs> and trying to avoid foundation until you absolutely, absolutely need foundation means that you have the cleanest code that is in the pure language as opposed to relying on some construct or type yeah. that has been created for uh, utility. So... It would be really interesting to see like playgrounds get much better. It would also be really cool to see something like this rumored Marzipan project, like the cross-platform mm -hmm. UI framework. Uh, yeah. A quick plug, we actually talked about that, me and Guy, <laughs> on our new podcast called Stacktrace. Uh, so I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode if you guys want to go and check that out. Another thing that is missing from Xcode right now is that there are three different ways to do custom presentations for debugging. One is from NSObject. One is through the Playground protocol, which allows you to do a, a custom quick look. Yeah. And the other is to do a custom mirror, right. which is also presented when you go into... Um, it's LLDB. I keep wanting to say GDB out of habit, but <laughs> it's not this LLDB. Right. And those really need to be unified because creating presentations for types, one way to do it and having one way that's customizable is really more coherent than having three ways. Absolutely. And I think that could be said for a lot of these kind of debugging tools where, you know, it seems like a lot of them are like pretty good in isolation, but there's no like big coherent story. Like it's not easy to like start debugging something in the uh, LLDB debugger and then like jump over to view debugging or maybe run some instruments. It feels like those things could be streamlined a lot more or create more like nicer workflows. Mm -hmm. This is again, evil empire. The stormtroopers are working overtime. They're exhausted. And I'm hoping that by the time WWTC rolls around, that we're really going to see something wonderful. But that's, again, what I hope every single year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So take it with a grain of salt. For me, also, uh, one thing I would actually love to see, because I think, like, you know, just like the Death Star, <laughs> Xcode is such a big piece of software. And you can see that when you try to update Xcode, for example, and you're running iTunes, you have to, you know, quit iTunes to update Xcode. So you can imagine what kind of dependency situation they have there under the hood. So I have some also like a little bit of empathy for the people working on it because, you know, it must be hard because they are hearing these things over and over again that, you know, all the tooling is is not good and it can get so much better. And I think it might also be a little bit frustrating because I can imagine that the code base is very huge and it's hard to work with. So one thing I would personally love to see is to just kind of slim down Xcode as much as possible and try to make something which is more streamlined and new and modern and maybe not have all the crazy features that it has and just focusing on being a really good 
programming environment, you know, a really good editing experience, a really good debugging experience, and maybe focus less on these kind of fancy visual things and, you know, having a full Git merge tool built in and all these kind of things. There has been a movement recently of non-Apple toolers. Yeah. And people are choosing to use alternative IDEs, alternative editors, alternative ways of com- of compiling. Yeah. Because they just feel that Xcode isn't there for them, that it has just become a dinosaur that when you, you know, pinch its nose, its tail doesn't, you know, wag until, <laughs> you know, far too late. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this is another thing which I'm think actually really excited about because I don't tend to use these alternative tools like AppCode or Xamarin or React Native, but I'm really happy that they exist because competition is always good. And mm-hmm. a lot of great ideas are coming out of that space, like React Native's hot reloading, for example. That's something I would love to be able to do, perhaps in a playground, you know, or how you can easily plug in things in Visual Studio Code. I would love to see those things in Xcode as well. All right, I think we have time for one more question. And this one is a little bit different, but it's something that I would love to talk to you about, Erica. And it comes from D-Man. And D-Man wants to know what we think about all the commentary and snark about the Swift language when it comes to adding smaller features like toggle, for example. And people believe that you know it's not worth spending time on and that we should focus on bigger issues. So do you want to just quickly kind of recap this kind of thing that happened around this uh, toggle API proposal that Chris Eidhoff made uh, and kind of, you know, what happened in the kind of discussion around that proposal? Chris Eidhoff introduced a proposal that allows in place mutation of a Boolean variable. So let's say you have a type and the Boolean is nested way, 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 way down. So you have to follow quite the key path to get there. Normally what you would have to do is extremely long key path equal, extremely long key path again, negated, you know, put put a bang in front of it. Yeah, exactly. And that breaks a whole bunch of rules of, you know, don't repeat yourself be clear and concise and so forth. Mm -hmm. So he said, this is done often enough. Why don't we just introduce an in-place mutating toggle? It will save code. It will be a little bit cleaner. And it will just make programming experience for some people a bit nicer. And it went out for review. I actually voted against it. It was the most mild no you have ever seen. My my vote against was, I don't know if this is important enough, but you know, it would be nice if we had it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that was the level of my my argument against it, and it passed. And I was totally great that it was passed. You know, fine, it's just nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I do worry about making the standard library too big, especially for things that are a little too esoteric. But I think this is, you know, passes the bar of useful in multiple cases and so forth. Yeah, and that's always the balance you have to strike when designing a standard library. It's like you want to provide all the utilities that are very common and can potentially be error prone or repetitive, but you also Mm -hmm. want to keep it thin and light, right? So you're not trying to solve Mm -hmm. all the problems in the world. 
you want a minimal API surface. Exactly. You don't want it to be so big or so complex that people can't use it. If you look at Unix, you never stop learning Unix. <laughs> you yeah. never know the best way to do something. There is not a single person on Earth who has a full mastery of Unix. Yeah, and the same goes for other languages. Like That's a big criticism of languages like PHP, which has a huge standard library, mm -hmm. where you also have, like you say, with Unix, so many different ways of doing something. So yeah, I think it's great that we have this kind of restraint when we are you know, together in the Swift community kind of discussing this and designing these uh, APIs. But there was kind of a big controversy here, or rather there was some kind of... It was a minor controversy, but it took a lot of us by surprise, yeah. which is there was on Twitter and on the forums and in one GitHub repository, some very snarky and nasty replies. Mm -hmm. And it took us back because we are a nice community. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the Swift community has tended to be very supportive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't mean we agree with each other all the time. But argument has been incredibly civil. And here suddenly, for the first time in a few years, we saw a bit of nastiness. And I think a lot of us flash back to when for loops, C-style for loops were taken out of the language. Yeah. At, which actually had had a much bigger reaction. But here we were again, and people were being you know, rather mean to Chris. And I think that it kind of urged us to take some action to say how important it is that the wider community have a voice in Swift Evolution because they have skin in the game. Yeah. And I think that this snarkiness came out of a feeling of helplessness. And the problem is that for people like me, whose business is writing about the language, I have the time to follow Swift Evolution. Yeah. College students also have the time to follow Swift Evolution. And people who are self-employed can make the time to follow Swift Evolution. But a lot of people who have a really vested interest in the process, in the language, who are making monetary investments where, you know, having a roof over their head is involved in where Swift goes, they don't necessarily have the time to follow not just the mailing list, which was hard, but the forms, which have become almost impossible. Yeah. And here are decisions being made by people they feel are removed from the realities of day-to-day -day development and getting their voices heard and getting their opinions into the mix so that it's not just academic, that it's not just people who are language enthusiasts, hobbyists, who are specifically, you know, engaged with evolution because they have the time. Yeah is an ongoing problem. And it's one that continues and needs to be addressed because it is so critical that the language serves the greater community. Obviously, the number one consumer is Apple. It's their language. They own it. 
even though they've open sourced it, they are the primary consumer and you can never get far from that. Yeah. It's just a reality. They own the repo. They own the core team, even though several members of the core team do not work for Apple. Mm -hmm. But Apple is the number one consumer. Yeah. And this is something that has always happened with Apple tooling, which is how do we give these people a voice, influence, and how do their needs play into this? And I think the current system with Swift and the Swift bugs is far, far better than radars. Oh, yeah. Because radars are essentially invisible. Yeah. There's much more transparency with the gyra and with the Swift evolution. Mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with open radar, that was a, a pushback. But a lot of people who use Swift don't realize that they can be part of Swift evolution or they just feel it is too time consuming. Yeah. They don't realize that the bug reporting system is not through radar. That it is a separate system and it is a transparent system. And it's a system that allows you to comment on bugs, to be invested in bugs without having to really put huge amounts of times into this and to make feature requests. So do you think the controversy or what do you want to... I'm going to call it a kerfuffle. Okay. So do you think the kerfuffle um, that kind of surrounded this uh, this proposal and this discussion, do you think it kind of came out of a reaction to the situation? Like it wasn't so much about the proposal itself, but it was more about kind of, you know, we see these things happening that we may not be agreeing with and we feel kind of helpless to do something about it. I think that's a good description of the people who were reacting. And they reacted in an inappropriate way. Yeah, obviously. But there weren't very many of them. Yeah. But there were also people who said, quite frankly, you know, we don't support this. And they did it in a very polite way Mm -hmm. and appropriate way. And the only reaction to them is, please be more involved. Yeah. Because if you choose not to, to vote if you choose not to participate for whatever reasons and these reasons are really good reasons you can still have input into the process and the entire swift open source project has bent over backwards trying to make it approachable yeah i don't think it's there yet i would really love to see more proactive things like taking ideas into the community and doing surveys. When I first brought up the idea of surveys and questionnaires and so forth, the pushback from traditional Apple developers is language should not be a popularity contest. Mm -hmm. And that misses an important point, which is it's not about popularity. It's about utility. Yeah. And Getting feedback from people using the least amount of their time, because their time is really, it's billable, it's valuable. They're, you can quantitate it. Yeah. I don't think quantitate's a word, <laughs> but I, I, I'm using it anyway. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and if you can get polls and surveys and so forth out and get a sense from the community what their concerns are, what would be most valuable to them, then yeah, let's do surveys, let's do polls, and 
yeah, let's make it something of a popularity contest because the people it needs to be popular with are the people who are writing for this ecosystem. Yeah. And they matter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit, you know, a push versus pull kind of method where mm-hmm. right now it's very much uh it, right now it's very much pull where you know or for people right now it's very much push you have to yourself go in and actively join the community where if if there were something like surveys on a kind of semi regular basis then you know it would be way lower effort to kind of just give your opinion and maybe this could mm-hmm. help make people feel less frustrated in these kind of situations because it's really unfortunate where you know a person who is making chris in this case where he's making a proposal which you know you may agree or disagree with it but you know you should never attack the person who is kind of you know making these kind of um proposals and i want to point out two things first of all i wrote a proposal that replaced a comma with a colon so (laughs) you know if you're going to get on someone for triviality you know here i am well people shouldn't attack you either you know no everyone (laughs) should feel empowered and safe well i don't think most people even are aware of that proposal the proposal that really ticked people off was the c4 loop and i stand behind that one yeah it really had no place in the language it did not fit with the language it was there reflexively and Everything you can do with side effects and so forth can be done more elegantly and appropriately and using modern constructs and functional programming and more in the current language. We now have really strong sequences. We have collections. And these have become realized in ways that they would not have been if we had just tried to be C. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's why, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's really awesome when you have people in the community who are kind of seeing, pushing the limit to see, okay, can we go this way? Okay, maybe not. Let's go this way instead. How about this? And trying different things. And this is, you know, a community that we would like to have where, you know, anyone can propose anything. And that's the beauty of it. And anyone should feel safe to be able to propose it without kind of being personally attacked for doing so. I don't think that you're safe from criticism. No, and that's a very different And thing. that's important. Yeah, absolutely. And that's different. But, you know, just common civility. Mm-hmm. You don't mock. You don't try to injure. That's just normal workplace. Yeah. But criticism. Yeah. Hell yeah. Criticism is a vital import part of any sort of development project. Yeah. You have to be willing to put your ideas out there because... The more that they are attacked, and I mean attack in a logical sense, in a critical sense, the stronger they're going to get. Mm -hmm. And it is evolution. So, you know, it's not named that by accident. Right. You know, evolutionary pressure is selection. It's going to take the things that are strongest and keep them there. And having critical input is vital to making sure that the right choices are made. Yeah. And with this particular proposal, the toggle proposal, it was certainly argued against. And I think I made the majority of those arguments against. And it withstood that, which means that, yeah, it should be part of the standard library. So, 
yeah, there should not be safe spaces for ideas in an evolutionary process. But there should be respect and courtesy to the people who are involved in it. I think that's a great way of summarizing this. Perfect. Uh, you know, I love to sometimes talk about these kind of things. Uh, when Chris actually was on the show a couple of episodes back, we talked a little bit about this kind of rock star culture that is sometimes forming in our in our industry. And, you know, sometimes I think it's important to kind of take a step back and look at our community. And even though it's an amazing community with so many awesome people, you know, sometimes things can happen and it's good to talk about those and to see what we can learn from it as a whole. So... We've reached the end now of this episode, so all that remains is first to thank everyone who sent in questions and topics to the show. Uh, it was really, really great questions. And if you now listen to this and you're thinking, wow, I have a great question that I would like for John and his future guests to answer, then all you have to do is head to swiftbysundell.com podcast where you can submit it, or you can just tweet it to at swiftbysundell on Twitter. So all that remains now is for me to thank you very much, Erica, for taking the time to join me on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Yeah, it was so much fun to have you on and lots of great discussions. So if people want to find you online, where should they go? EricaSadoon.com. I'm Erica Sadoon on Twitter. And... Um, you can generally track me down because I have a complete lack of imagination for any other platform. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> it helps that I married somebody with a very unusual last name. Weird name, great guy. That's awesome. That's perfect combination. You can also find me on Twitter at John Sundell, and you can find everything about this show and the weekly blog posts at swiftbysundell.com. Again, big thanks to Ray Vendelik for sponsoring this episode. And thanks so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. <laughs>